Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. With me, I have another guest who is a formal guest and friend um, here to talk about books. Um, but before we get into this conversation, make sure to follow the podcast on Spotify and subscribe to it on iTunes. And if you like a particular episode, make sure to share it on your social medias. All right. Uh, special guest, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, I'm Leslie Ann Smith. I'm a former classmate, I guess. Yeah. Of Jay from University of Montevallo. I was here when we did our Great American Road Trip. Yes, the Great Queer American Road Trip where Leslie and I talked about us moving and Leslie is has currently been living in korea for what two years right yeah my two-year anniversary is end of this month yeah and so yeah we road tripped all the way up to um san francisco and you flew out of san francisco and then i drove up to oregon and yeah kept, really did that yeah I, it was a <laughs> it was a wild ride And just, I mean, that was the first time I had ever seen different landscapes before. Um, What was was my favorite? Um, I I liked, um, what's the, where was Moab? Where is that at? In Utah? I I liked that little stop through. When we got that food at that one place yeah yeah that burger place i liked there just like i i don't think i could live there because it just looks weird <laughs> it looks like a sci-fi movie yeah 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 it does i liked the grand canyon i'm really glad we went there yeah because yeah. it's very impressive even though i thought my lungs were gonna collapse i was terrified Oh, just at how how high up it was. Just so high, and it was so big, and there were those people jumping to take their photos, jumping in the air, and I just imagined them getting swept off by the wind. I can't. The people were like sitting on the like rocks at the like tip where you could like fall over into just thousands of feet. <laughs> I also really like. When I had to drive us through the Rocky Mountains out of Colorado. Yeah, I was so scared. It was so pretty, but I remember being terrified. You were... (laughs) And those cars and the trucks were driving so damn fast. I'm just trying to go. And you you were just speeding through. (laughs) You were speeding. to go over like 60. I think the speed limit was 70. I couldn't even get your car to 70. Oh, really? It wouldn't go above like, because the elevation, yeah. yeah. Like, pedal to the metal of the car. Yeah. I did like Colorado, like driving into Colorado, but actually being, and I don't know if we were just on a different side of Colorado. I don't know, but I didn't like staying in Colorado. In Denver, I liked the restaurant we ate at. Yeah. Yeah, I like the restaurant. But it was very smoggy. Foggy? Smoggy? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we just didn't go to a a more 
I don't know. It was just very dark, <laughs> too. Yeah, I like mountains, but I was also glad to leave the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I, and then I did. I did like um, being in San Francisco. Um, yeah, it it's a lot. Um, I've since then sold my car. I don't know if I told you that. Yeah, I sold my car. You said what? Did you get a new car? No, I just, um, well, before Corona, I was, the bus system, the bus system on this side of town is much more, um, quicker to campus and quicker to just downtown. So I just found that I didn't really, I mean, I, and I didn't really take long trips in my car because I didn't trust it. So, um, I just ended up selling it and I just take the, well, I took the bus and I would. I use Chad's car, but now I think um, I won't be taking the. I don't think I'll be taking the bus for a little bit. It and I hope I won't have a reason to um, take the bus. Yeah, but so the car. Um. So I'm curious to know, like, how what has it been like, um, living in Korea for two years after moving from Alabama? It's been... It's been culture shock and also not been culture shock, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like, there are parts of it that are different. Like, now, instead of living in the boonies where I don't have internet connection and my neighbors are livestock, I live in a really big city it surprises me constantly how big Busan is just like how long the city is and how much land it takes up that is considered Metro Busan metropolitan city. Um, the food is different. I love the food. I cook more. That's great. I hate cooking. Actually, it's a scam. The fact that I have to cook and clean dishes for the rest of my life, I would rather die. Um, I'm a little bit more, that's a lie. I was going to say I'm a little bit more social, but that's a big lie. I am still an introvert. Uh, I have two friends, and I go outside a lot and do a lot of different things, but I don't do it with other people. I, yeah, I, like go on walks or? Yeah, I like to go on walks a lot. I like to go to a lot of historical places. And museums and like temples and stuff i also just go out to eat a lot there's also a lot of just places to go like it's really popular to go to like norebangs pc bangs room cafes stuff like that which like pc bang is just like those rooms where they have all of the pc gaming computers and so i'll go there and like go with my friends and we'll play a game together like right now we're playing terraria which is like minecraft apparently even though i've never played minecraft but you just like collect materials and build stuff and fight monsters. So I'm just digging a hole the entire time. It's great. Um, Norebongs are just karaoke. Like we go to a karaoke room and just scream along the songs and then go eat barbecue and go to the beach because I'm so close to about three different beaches that we'll just go on the beach um, and either sit there or eat ice cream on the beach or set off fireworks on the beach like true rednecks. <laughs> 
it's you know it sounds really like nice it's a nice beach life it is a lot of people walk their dogs on the beaches um there's a lot of good restaurants on the beachfront that have a nice view of like the ocean so you can get that sweet window seat while you eat yeah it sounds nice um and then i do remember you kind of talking about the how the white people there that are there are like how they handle the culture shock when some of the older folks that have been living there like kind of like just tell them like get your like get your shit together but like in their own way mm. i actually was looking in one of the like busan expat facebook groups today and got annoyed because it was a bunch of white foreigners talking about how this club at Hyundai Beach was apparently turning away foreigners. And my first question is, why are you going to a club in the pandemic? My second yeah. question is, why do you care? <laughs> I think my opinion on white people in Korea nowadays has become that white people either really enjoy living in Korea and have maybe been able to like make themselves a nice tidy little living, a nice tidy little home, and are, like, decent enough. And then, on the other hand, they just make themselves miserable. My friend put it perfectly. She's Korean-American. She says that white people in Asia, especially, just want to be discriminated against so badly. They just want to be oppressed. <laughs> and it's like, all these people... I actually, I screenshotted one. Hang on. It made me so... No, I, I love the receipts. This man said, nothing new in Korea, guys. I've been here 23 years. In the late 90s, there were clubs and bars that wouldn't accept foreigners. There were bars where foreigners had to pay double. There were bars named after our bands, our cities with our own themes, not letting us in. I'm sorry. What sir. the fuck? thing is this man's name is chris stone first of all but what sends me is that like southeast asian people can't get rooms rented to them because landlords don't want to rent to southeast asian people like first of all this is not racism this is xenophobia so let's get that straight second of all i think white people like to forget or they just don't know or they haven't educated themselves or whatever that our presence here is a direct product of a benefit of american imperial involvement in the east we are here because of the american military industrial system to use a phrase i actually wrote something i said i wonder if we as like foreigners in korea or um, we're essentially migrant workers because most people who come to korea as a teacher stay here on a one-year contract and then leave we're migrant workers. We are migra migratory or whatever. So I think foreigners, especially white foreigners from America or Britain, because, or Europe, like white Europeans, because one white European commented, in Europe, they would have rioted against this, ignoring like the history of racism in Europe, first of all. <laughs> we like to project an image of like the disenfranchised foreigner onto ourselves, which is just the image that I suppose we imagine of foreigners in our own country. Like, there are literally people 
in concentration camps in America right now. And y'all are worried that you can't get into the club in Korea where you have health insurance, first of all, a cushy job, probably, second of all. And third of all, you don't fear dying from corona because we have a competent healthcare system. But you want to go to the club. So that's how I feel about white people today. <laughs> I feel like we are just not picking the right battles and trying to co-op a feeling and emotion when really we just are not actually being oppressed or discriminated against. We just feel the effects of like minor xenophobia and also it's inconvenient. But also, I think the thing that gets me about these white people is that they always try to say, well, there's no discrimination laws in Korea. There's nothing you can do, which is a lie. Because you can go to, like, the Global Help Center. You can go to the different... There's different organizations designed to help foreigners who don't speak Korean. You can get a lawyer. Like, we are not stopped from getting a lawyer. And you can call the police. The police are not armed in Korea, and they are required to investigate everything that is reported to them. And no one wants to deal with the police. So if you looked them in the face and said, do I need to call the police? They probably wouldn't fight you on it. I think... My friend also put it where she feels like, especially white expats, just don't help themselves and expect other people to help them. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like... Expat is... what? Say that word again. Expats, which I use... I used it incorrectly. The word expat comes from the word expatriate, which means that you are no longer a patriot of your country. Which I feel like the word expat, it's used broadly for white foreigners. We just, we call everyone who's not white a foreigner. We are expats. I feel like the word expat only works when you leave with no intention of returning to your home country. Otherwise, you are a migrant worker, a tourist, or a foreigner. Damn. Um, This is... (laughs) I feel like I'm getting like just kind of like visualizing the the kind of whiteness that is happening on your end um and yeah it's like really interesting Most of the white people I've met here have either been military or like those white quote unquote liberal foreigners who think that because they travel that I love all cultures I am so progressive. Those bitches. <laughs> but I, I think, of, like, I, yeah, I, I guess I get, I find this interesting because of, like, the power, dip, like, dip, like, it's like they come to another country and still expect to have, like, the same power and privilege that they would in the U.S. or, like, they still exercise that power or is that we still have a lot of social power in Korea because we're white, because we're American or European. We have more social power than, say, like, someone from Vietnam or Cambodia or China because there is deeper xenophobic and racist undertones in relationships between Korea and people of these countries, which is something that, like, we can discuss and we can talk about, 
But I feel like these racist, these discussions of racism in Korea don't include these people. It's just the quote-unquote discrimination that white people feel like we are experiencing. Which, I think it's wrong to call it racism. It is xenophobia, sure. But America is also xenophobic. Britain is also xenophobic. No one is free from xenophobia. And at the end of the day, because there was one time I was out with my friends and we went to a restaurant nearby, near a couple of subway stops over, and they weren't letting foreigners in, so they wouldn't let us in. But at the end of the day, my life is not in danger because this restaurant won't let me in. I just walked down the street and went to a different one. I am not systematically barred from multiple places. It's a handful of, like, institutions that don't want to let me in, then I just don't go there because I still have a job, I still have health insurance, I still have a visa, and the old ladies still point out subway seats to me. So, I just don't see it. I don't see it. <laughs> well. Well. <laughs> that, that was all very educational for me. Just just the, the boundaries of whiteness. The shade of it all. Um, Let's get into some classic shit. You have a song for this segment. What is that song and what are some lyrics that stand out to you? I have Rina Sawayama's Shut the Fuck Up. Oh. (laughs) I like this. Yes, I really enjoy this song. I enjoy her whole album that this one is on. I think the album's called Sawayama, but this is my favorite song. And the lyrics I chose, the first one is from, I think, like, the first verse. How come you don't expect me to get mad when I'm angry? You've never seen it, though I know I'm not the only one. How come you don't respect me, expecting fantasies, leave our reality... Why don't you just sit down and shut the fuck up? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> what what just what just hits for you? I think it's the how come you don't expect me to get mad when I'm angry? Just because I've been through recently, I guess recently, earlier this year, I left a relationship of like a year. And just throughout, like, my whole existence was people being surprised, I guess, and me being mad when it's, like, you could see me getting angry. Just the idea of, like, people being surprised that women get mad when they've been ignoring their anger for so long. The idea that women cannot be mad. We can be angry, but we can't be mad. The difference between angry and mad. What what is that difference? To me, I feel like anger is more internal. You don't externalize your anger. When you externalize it, it becomes mad. You're mad. But your anger is something that you feel inside of you. That it's your job to let go of your anger. So you can be a better person. But when you're mad, your anger becomes other people's. It like enters other people's consciousness. And now they have to realize, oh, she's angry. She's mad, and they have to realize that. Uh, uh, say the last part 
again. They have to realize that. They have to realize that they did things that led to this consequence of you being mad and not just angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can ignore anger, but you cannot ignore someone being mad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, were you done like kind of like talking about what, why the lyric stood out to you or did you have another part? Yeah, I had another part. I feel like I just got you on a tangent. That's what I tend to do to people. <laughs> I love going on tangents, so I'm easily led. <laughs> From like the second verse, I'm not being naturally negative. No, I don't want to be that girl again because I've been done and been through more friends than I can count on my fingertips. How come you don't detest me? I am your medicine and your reality. Why don't you just sit down and shut the fuck up? I think I like this part because I've been called negative before by a lot of like my exes, which I never felt like really applied. It's mostly male exes that have called me negative. I don't really think any of my female exes have called me negative or angry or mad but Mm. men in history especially have been like you're just a negative person you're just always angry you're always mad at me and it's like why do you think that is actually yeah oh wait so okay so yeah i'm really curious on why you've heard this mostly from your male lovers i mean i'm pretty sure it has something to do with like their own insecurity um but yeah, I guess I have. In your experience, what do you think? Like, why is that a male response for you? I think it's part of how we're socialized. I feel like women or people who are biologically female or born female, raised female, are socialized to assume that. I don't want to say assume that it's already our fault, but we're assumed, we're raised to assume that we can fix it by being empathetic and that we should always strive to keep the peace and we should strive not to make someone more angry because we are the ones who should bring comfort to this situation because we're the ones with the emotional maturity to do it. Hmm. And I feel like with a lot of men and people who are raised with male values, I suppose we'll call it, don't really get that empathetic, like, conflict diffusion training. And that I think also men just think that if a girl is mad at them, that it's they should try to absolve blame as quickly as possible so she doesn't leave them. Or so she doesn't hold it against them. Because if they can absolve themselves of blame, then she can't use it against him later. Hmm. Hmm. I think a lot of men are insecure about women leaving the relationships simply because I think that a lot of men don't have like comforting physical emotional relationships in their daily lives and so they are disgustingly verbally or physically sometimes abusive, sometimes possessive over their female partners just because they want to protect that comfort zone that women bring them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think even I think this also translates to men who date men as well. Um, except, definitely the gender difference is like in terms of like power, it, the gender difference is different. But I, I, in my experience, I feel as though I have been one of those men who are like trying to absolve myself of any guilt um, so that, you know, I, I think it's like a male thing <laughs> because men are taught to be insecure and to blame. So, yeah, I think, yeah. Women have that too, but I think it's more of like when I'm trying to absolve blame, it's because I'm afraid that this man might hurt me. <laughs> yeah, so it's out of like protection, whereas when men do it, it's like out of pride <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a lot of it is pride. I feel like some of it is like wanting to maintain a relationship and maintain like a peace and a status quo. They just do it in a way that isn't productive. I agree. So this song was Shut the Fuck Up by Rina Sawayama. And that was some classic shit. I love how we, you know, just, you know, did a, a we just did a social analysis of uh, gender socialization and um, all through some, 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 uh, is that, was she a rapper? No, she's like, like an um, R&B artist. Pop singer, kind of. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it's like pop EDM, alternative rock, kind of, on different ones. It's in. I have it. On, I have her album on the same playlist as Chloe X Halley's new album, which uh-huh. I feel like they go well together. Oh, okay. I need to, need to check her out. Um. Okay. Yeah, but we we just did all of that through <laughs> some lyrics from her song. Um. Yeah, that's. That's the sociology major, huh? Coming out. Yeah. That's sociology, English, marriage. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Oh, yeah, you did. You you doubled, right? In sociology and English. Yeah. I feel it was perfect for things like this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, so I brought you here to talk about books. Um, you love books. I love books. You want to, I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, you want to own your own publishing house, right, eventually? Yeah. That's a dream of yours? Yes. I want to open my own publishing house where I would publish, like, marginal stories and also, like, immigrant stories and hopefully be able to publish in multiple languages. Yeah. Yeah, I remember this idea, and I think it sounds really cool. And yeah, because you said there's not any like literature about um, what's the phrase again? Mm, expats, not or ex- foreigner, not or... the. I th- does it start with an M? Migrant workers. Migrant, but you could you explain what the? Could you just explain what it is again? The the, the bookstore that you're wanting to. <laughs> A publishing, publishing house up, yeah. in Korea that would focus on like immigrants in Korea, people who migrated from their home countries um, to like work, live here for work or come here full time. Um, looking at like 
Western foreigners who come here? Like, why do they come here? Southeast Asian immigrants. Um, there's a lot of African immigrants here as well. Hmm. And seeing, like, the intersection of their identities and, like, what it means to be immigrant here and what is, like, the idea of being a Korean citizen. Also, just looking at um, diaspora to a certain degree. And also, um, I'm specifically interested in talking to a lot of, like, mail-order brides who come here. Because there's a lot of Southeast Asian women who will come as mail-order brides, in a way. Hmm. Looking at the stories of people who decide to come here. But then also looking at, like, marginalized voices in um, Korea, like LGBT communities, um, people who are mixed Korean. I want to look at what is the idea of like living in Korea because it's not just that one homogenous idea of Korean we can see that it is diverse to a certain degree yes we do have a major population or a mostly I don't want to say homogenous we do have a majority Korean but it is not homogenous anymore in my opinion um and is this kind of so if you is this kind of like a research interest that you have in terms of like um capturing the migrant experience in in korea like is this also tied to a research interest or is this tied to specifically this publishing house dream partially i think because i no longer want to have a career in academia okay i do want to like have a master's degree but i would rather be What's the word I want to say? I'd rather create the things that people will use in academia. Okay. Like create artifacts, I suppose would be the right word. Yeah. Where I'm doing like the, I want to major in art culture for my master's um, at oh, nice. Busan National University, which focuses on film. And I would like to do like indie publishing but also explore new ways of publishing because i do think that like physical books are still very popular but it's not the intense future you know i think looking at digital book storytelling needs to also happen so i would like to do like short films like indie filmmaking and also publishing people's work and like putting people's art out there so that way someone who is doing that research can use their works and can use these films as like part of the research because that is um quantitative qualitative qualitative that is like qualitative yeah yeah and yeah just in terms of like yeah having cultural production like being an important part of like researching a certain uh, culture, certain uh, life experience. Yeah, I think that's um, very important. Um, and I like how you are thinking of it in a way that you won't have to like go through a lot of hoops, really, like in terms of like the current state that I'm in going to grad school, um, trying to find a job on an unstable academic job market and yeah i think you're gonna bypass a lot of obstacles um yeah i think 
also realized that I would just be happier in this kind of situation because when I thought about like me being a professor, me being an academic, I didn't see a lot of joy for myself in it, but I feel a lot more joy about being in a publishing house, like working with other people to like help them publish their work and get it out there and also just being involved on creative projects I thought would make me a lot happier. I like what you said where you said um, when you thought about being a professor, you didn't find joy in it. Um, I think that's something that I'm like having to really think more about, like it is, you know, being in an in the being in academia is being a professor um, something that is going to give me joy or is it just going to bring me more stress? Um, I go back and forth on like, you know, sometimes some days I like teaching or like the idea of teaching and some other days I don't like uh, the idea of teaching. I, I really like researching. I really like writing and I really like, yeah, I like that whole process um, I like, you know, writing and, and thinking um, with certain theories and things. Um, but I like recognize that, you know, for me to have a career, it would be like you have to do. Well, first of all, you're forced to research and, and publish or else you won't get a job. Um mm-hmm or keep your job and then you have a teaching load and you have to meet certain objectives and all of this other stuff. So it's like it, the Academy itself kind of like takes all the joy out of the things that I like doing. (laughs) So I'm like, how can I still do these things without, you know, taking the joy out of it? life so hard yeah it is hard okay but anyways we we came here to talk about books Mm. (laughs) so first question what is the book that changed your life can it be books yes I have books too so yes what are the books that changed your life I guess the first that I'll talk about is I might have to look up the authors while I do this. One is The Egypt Game, which is a very old book that I read in elementary school. It's by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. It was the first book I remember reading as a kid that I enjoyed reading. And it's the book that I think started me on enjoying to read as a pastime. It's actually a Newbery Honor winner. It was published in like the 60s. Mm. Um, mm. It's a little, dated. it's not that dated, but it is a little dated. Um, but it's about this group of kids who like become friends because they're playing in the backyard of this antique store and they're playing this imaginative game of like living in ancient Egypt and being like Egyptian kings and queens while like there's a lot of terrible things happening in their neighborhood around them Mm. Hmm. and i reread it every once in a while it's definitely one of those childhood books that's very special to me in that same vein is the goose girl by shannon hale which is a retelling of the grim's fairy tale goose girl 
And it's about this princess who is lost. She's going to, like, be married to the prince of, like, their enemy country so they can become allies. But there's, like, a coup by her um, maid who then takes her place as the princess. And they, like, abandon her in the woods. And she, like, hides in the opposing kingdom's um, city where she eventually joins the people who, like take care of the livestock for the castle and she becomes like the goose girl she takes care of the geese and she eventually like returns to the throne there's also magic powers but every time i read that book i'm reminded why i like it because it's just so well written and so good in my opinion that i reread it every couple of years Hmm. and then also is Two books that I read last year, actually. I read The Color Purple and Homegoing by Yagisa, I think. I read both of them last year in February, maybe. Um, I read The Color Purple first and cried. And I don't think I have to explain why that book is life-changing. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I've seen the movie, but I need to read the book. It's great. Right after that, I read Homegoing, which I don't know if you know about that one, but it's like a generational tale of these two sisters in Africa. One is kidnapped and sold into the slave trade. The other one remains in Africa. I think they're half-sisters. And then it like follows their descendants through the times in America and in Africa until it reaches like modern day and the timelines converge again. And the descendants meet again in the same place where the sisters were separated. And it's just, like, really powerful, that whole book. So after I read those two, I didn't read another book for about a month and a half because nothing else was going to be that good. I still think about those. I've also read one I like is called Convenience Store Woman which let me look up the author's name, Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. She's a Japanese author who writes, like, postmodern surrealist type stuff. And Convenience Store Woman is about this woman who was, like, strange all her life growing up, like, borderline a psychopath. And then when she graduated high school, she started working at a convenience store, like a 7-Eleven type deal. And just the ritual of working in a convenience store and the mechanical actions of being a retail worker and having all of the rules set down, you know, the expectations is what kept her sane essentially. And I think about that book every time I walk into a convenience store and I think about how I felt as a retail worker and how I would find some kind of like comfort in that ritualized like mechanical actions of knowing what to do and being able to do it. But it like haunts me. (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, I can see how it's haunting me because it's just like the repeat, like just repeating the actions all the time and just kind of becoming numb to it. And she talks about how she's like in tune with the store. She knows what the store needs. Like the store is part of her because she's just been there for so long. What's the book called? That sounds really creepy and I want to read that. Convenience Store Woman. Is it like is it like a horror kind of thing or it's not like horror in the traditional sense. I could see it as being like 
kind of psychological horror. I wouldn't say it's, like, terrifying. It's definitely creepy to a certain degree. Yeah. And it's something that is haunting, I think, is the best word. Yeah, I, I think I like I like stuff. I like if, if it is horror, if I'm consuming some kind of horror media, horror media, um, I like things that are creepy, but not, like, you know, jump scary, but, like, that are creepy that kind of, like, sit with you. I like stuff like that. That one. I read it last year on the flight back to Korea from America, and my plane was sitting on the tarmac for, like, an hour, so I read the book in the hour I was waiting for this plane to take off, and I have not stopped thinking about it since. <laughs> Dang. It's a very easy book. You can read it fairly quickly. Hmm. Um. Okay. Oh, oh, okay. You got more. I got two more. I okay. also have Akira by Katsuhiro Otomo, which is a manga series. It's the one of the defining series of cyberpunk, like the cyberpunk genre. And Akira is like a post-apocalyptic Tokyo, in which Tokyo is Neo Tokyo, and it's this biker gang who discover like a government experiment and are trying to stop it. It's wild. It's fantastic. And then also is Binti by Nindi Okafor, Okafor, who's a Nigerian-American sci-fi writer. And Binti is a series of novellas that she wrote where it's about this girl from the Himba tribe in Africa who gets accepted to this I think it's called Uzma University. Like, it's the International Intergalactic University. It's like Harvard, I guess. And she's the first Himba person to be accepted. But Himba people don't leave their homeland. And so she has to leave her homeland and basically exercise herself to go to this university. But then her ship carrying her and her classmates is attacked by this race of, like, jellyfish aliens, I guess. And everyone is killed by her. But then she has to, like, find herself in all of this and also befriends one of the jellyfish aliens. It's a wild ride. I love them, too. Yeah, that sounds like a very... <laughs> it sounds like a drug trip, and... Yeah. yeah. It's something that I realized, wow, I really like sci-fi. Yeah, you can do... I haven't really given... I haven't really given myself the time to enjoy sci-fi because, I don't know, I guess I have a stigma against it, like... Oh, how can sci-fi be liter like literature or something like that? But um, every time I hear somebody talk about an Octavia Butler story, um, I'm like, damn, that sounds good. Um, because just the imagination of it, and I guess I'm so I'm so stuck on reading books that feel like quote unquote real um, that I haven't like ventured. I think you should. I think it's very rewarding. Even if it's just, like, fun, I guess. I feel like with the Binti series, there's a lot to be seen on, like, especially, I enjoy a lot of African diaspora sci-fi. Where I feel like it puts in a lot of, like, African diaspora emotions and feelings, which I think are interesting to be exposed to. Just because it's something that I've never read about before. Yeah, And I think through sci-fi, because I really into Afrofuturism, right? And that's part of, like, the inspiration for my publishing house is that I like the idea of when we go to space, we are othered. 
we are not um, bound by our earthly whatevers, by what holds us in the earth. And so I like that about sci-fi, especially, I think, African diasporic writers write fantastic sci-fi. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I just, you you, you giving me a lot of books to think about and, and a lot of different, uh, coming from a lot of different countries, and I'm like, damn, I need to broaden my horizon with my books because I think a lot of the books that, I think this, I, I'm okay with sharing this because a lot of the books that I have been exposed to in my education were from like white male authors and it wasn't until I started reading in graduate school that I was able like reading on my own um in grad school that I was able to discover um writers that weren't just white men in America um there's definitely like gaps that I haven't read like when we get to books I'm ashamed to like, I have, like, some book confessions I'll make of, like, things I'm ashamed that I haven't read. Um, but I definitely agree that it's easy to get stuck within, like, a narrow Western canon going through school. And it's hard to, like, it's hard to know where to start when you start broadening your horizons. Yeah. Um, so, for me, I have three books that have changed my life. Um, and I think they'll sound really weird when they're paired together. Um, but I have one from high school run from, uh, undergrad and one from grad school. So the high school book that changed my life, um, is J.D. Salinger's, I have two, J.D. Salinger's, um, The Catcher in the Rye and, um, Ken Kesey's or Kessie's, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, and the reason, now, the reason why I like these books was because, and I think that, okay, was because at the time, I was like 16 or 15 reading these in English class. Um, and I think at the time, I just, I had a lot of, I was I just had a lot of mess going on like with me emotionally. I wanted to like have like I felt like an outsider. I felt just mentally like an outsider. I felt like no one understood me. Um so I felt like a very it's very cliché white teenager. Um and <laughs> And um, those two books were books where I would just, I don't know, I just like the, the I just really like the protagonists of those stories um, and, like, how they tried to make sense of their lives. Um, and, yeah, I, yeah, I really, yeah, I really liked those two books and, um yeah, I, I tend to re, I tend to I used to read Catcher in the Rye like once a year, but then um I found out that that was what like Ted Bundy did, and I was like, huh, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, Catcher in the Rye when I read it, but I never read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
The Catcher in the Rye is a, has a great message in it, I think. Um, and The Catcher in the Rye is, um, it's uh, it's based in a mental hospital, and it's just about um, who's next? Huh? You said Catcher in the Rye is based in a mental hospital. Um, one flew of the cuckoo's nest. Um, yeah, it's based on the mental hospital and, um, yeah. And it's like the patients are battling against this, um, this quote unquote evil female nurse. And it's told from the perspective of a, um, indigenous, uh, patient there or an indigenous worker. It's been a while since I've read it, but it's told from the perspective of an, of an indigenous man. Um, and yeah, I think, I just like the narrative. I, I, I like things that do really interesting things with the narrative. Um, yeah. So if it's not like this conventional, uh, this is what happened on this day. This is what happened on this day. I like th- things that are that like have the first person narrative or just some kind of like weird narrator um, that like make you. Yeah, make you. like confused but also like sometimes you like don't know if you like the narrator or if you trust them I like that kind of like game when I read Mm, um, what is it there's that one literary type about the narrator you can't trust and I can't remember what it's called oh the unreliable narrator do you like that yeah I like the unreliable narrator yeah yeah um Okay, yeah, so that was in high school. My college one, um, so my college one is called um, White Noise by Don DeLillo. Um, You've read that one? I, I liked the book because it was, this was one of the first books I read when I was going into college, and this was before I was an English major. So this was the book that made me into an English major because I just enjoyed like talking about it, um, just writing about it and thinking about it. And it's, you know, it's a postmodern novel with um, just these weird, this weird family. And I just I, 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 I that's a book that I reread because um, I just find it really fascinating and I like the commentary that it provides on like American consumerism. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always liked that one. And I just really like the language, uh, the kind of like funky kind of weird language. Um, and I've read uh, Don DeLillo's other, some of his other stuff. And he, I think he's really good with how he uses language and um, just, and creating some really weird characters so um yeah that was another one um, i'm seeing how yeah fits in you as like an academic yeah what like you said what that makes sense um and then there was um there was another one i want to say that i let me see if there's another one from this period of time that I liked. Hmm. Can't remember. So I think that's the only one from, I do remember this other book called, um, 
uh, The House Gun by Nadine Gordimer. Oh, and also Disgrace. So the the classes I took with Dr. Rickle were all, like, I would always have, those would always be books that I just remember, like, really enjoyed reading. Um, and um, I took a, po- I, th- I took a post-apartheid class with her or something like that. Forgot what it was called. But it was books um, um, written by South, Af- South African uh, writers. Um, and yeah, I remember reading Disgraced and um, The House Gun. And The House Gun was um, basically, a, again, that one ha- experiments with language and um, doesn't have like quote, traditional quotation marks. So I'm like, oh, like this is cool. Um, and it just has this story over some murder that happened. It has some uh, weird things going on with whether or not a son was by, um, whether or not he was in a relationship with the black man he shot. Is there a baby from somewhere? Um, it, it's yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, and I like how silent they are about the romance between the um son and the black man um because um i really think that so it's about a white family so i really think that that just kind of like i don't know there's something unsettling about that where it's like they don't admit it i don't know it's it just it's always something that i kind of like really um it it just sits with me a certain way and disgrace does the same thing in the way that it um i think there's like there's some weird things going on with how um black men are positioned there too um and i think you know with some of like some of these books um even though like i was I have a heavily, a heavily like white influenced literature canon that I've read. I always like like certain books because they would have black people in them, but like try not to like make them as 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 of a presence. Um, and so I was always interested in like trying to really like bring out that presence that's hidden through like the narrative. Um, and that's kind of what I try to do with uh, my readings of film too. So I think <laughs> I think these books are like good, were good like exercises for me um, in doing that. And then um, and then in graduate school, um, I acquainted myself with Toni Morrison for the first time. Um, I read Sula and. It was just a beautiful book um, about black womanhood, friendship. um, And I just I love a good book that will drag black men's uh, uh, privilege. Um, And so that's what Toni Morrison does best. And so um, I really like Sula and I like the um, community she created. Um, I like the the generational stories that she tells and kind of like giving you a background into why certain characters are the way they are. And um, 
yeah, I I, I like um, yeah, I, I like the the friendship between Sula and and Nail, I believe. Um, and there's a, a great line. I'm not spoiling any. Well, I guess spoiler alert. Um, one of the characters dies. Well, the main Sula dies. <laughs> if you're gonna read this, I'm sorry. Okay. Sula dies. Okay. Sula dies, and um, when she's dying, she says, "Hmm, that wasn't so bad. Wait till I tell. Wait, wait, wait until I tell Nell." Um, and so it's. I thought I just love that line because I'm like, oh, like, you know, she's like, even in this, I don't know. It's just such a beautiful death scene. And just the fact that she is thinking of her friend in this moment, um, I was like, oh, like, it's, it's so, I don't know, it's just so beautiful. Um, and then um, the next book I read was The Bluest Eye. And yeah, it was the first book I like had to like, s- like really sit and, and read. Um, and, and like, I couldn't really like speed through it like I usually do um and yeah again just in terms of with that book she is um like really calling into play white supremacy as she does in all of her books um and just um there's some interesting uh things with sexuality that she is um writing about um and i think this there's this one scene where a black man is metaphorically raped with a flashlight like the light of the flashlight and morrison calls this a rape and and this is a moment where two white men are staring at him having sex with another woman and they're just like laughing and telling him to like keep going um so like and this is set in um the oh, i don't know the setting maybe the 50s or 30s or something um i can't remember the setting but the yeah it's it's a really interesting moment and she calls that a rape and she says like um this was like it was easy for me to write this in a feminine mode um, and I was just like, yeah, there's a lot going on with this scene and how it makes this character treat his wife and just women in his life. Um, so, yeah, that one was really interesting to me just in terms of, um, yeah, the things that are going on with black masculinity. Um, so, like in my in my educational journey i came from a very white white centered canon but i had saw saw glimpses of um like black black authors and black people black characters and then in grad school just immersed myself in Toni morrison now i'm reading Zora Neale hurston's um their eyes are watching god um, and that one is is also great. So, yeah. 
we really deserve the books that we've read? I feel like we do because we deserve to have this story. I was going to say, yeah, we do because I think, I think books offer us a, a lot of, not only is it a new world, it offers, it offers us a new language without mm-hmm. us even knowing it, you know? So, um, yeah, it just offers us a new way of, you know, thinking about a certain perspective or thinking about ourselves. Um, you said what? Gives us clarity. Yeah, you know, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think all of these books that I have read have given me some kind of clarity. Um, and I think that's why I return to them. That's why I consider them like life changing. Um, yeah, I think books at their best do give us clarity. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this this got deep. Yeah, I wrote down a couple of like handgun, disgrace, and Sula, and I'll try to get those. Yeah. To read yeah. soon. But yeah, all of those are great. I think. Um, and then, so were most of your books books that you read outside of um, of like coursework or anything? I didn't read any of these for coursework. So you read these, yeah. Um, the outside. only book I remember, which is a book for the third question you gave me, the only book I remember from school. There's a couple, I guess. The way you felt about Rickles' class giving you books that you always enjoyed or connected to was Roselle's classes for me. So anytime I was in those like postmodern horror or whatever garbage he was throwing at us classes was when I found the books and it's like this is utter garbage and I love it. <laughs> Bear Heart by Gerald Bisner, which I read for his class. And also when I read The Handmaid's Tale with him. Mm, that's also good. I guess psychological horror, I guess I'll call it. And um, I remember reading Naked Lunch, which I hate that book, but I appreciate what it did. It's the one that like destroyed censorship laws, essentially, in America. It was like, is this book trash or is this literature and can we censor it? The answer was no, you cannot censor it. And so that helped with censorship in America. I didn't enjoy the book, though. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Okay. So let's talk about books that were uh, either our guilty pleasures or that we're ashamed to enjoy. Okay. I don't believe in like being ashamed to like books. So I do have some guilty pleasures and I do have like some shame. I guess they're shameful to me, book (laughs) confession. I'll start with those. My shameful book confessions are, I have never read a book by Toni Morrison And I have not read a book by James Baldwin until, like, right now. Because I'm reading Going to Meet the Man. Yeah. And I feel like, as someone who, likes tries to encourage others to read, like, authors of color and, like, is really gung-ho on that, I haven't read Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. Who am I to tell you to read anything? Oh, Twitter's gonna come get you. 
I hope they do. I hope Twitter gets me banned. (laughs) (laughs) But guilty pleasure books, I have two. One is, I think it's called, I can look right now, I've got it behind me. It's called 13 Little Blue Envelopes. And it's this like, it's not that deep. It's like some high school rom-com book. I read it for the first time in high school. And I've read it a couple of times since then. And it's about this girl whose aunt disappears and leaves her these 13 little blue envelopes that's telling her what to do to, like, find out what happened. Because her aunt died, right? She disappeared and then she died. And so it's the envelopes leading her on, like, this wild goose chase around Europe, essentially, to go try to find whatever it is that her aunt left her. And it forces her to, like, travel to all these different countries in Europe and, like, fly by the seat of her pants and figure it the fuck out. And I read that before I came to Korea and then after I came to Korea. And I just genuinely like it. I think that she's a likable protagonist. I like that, as, like, problematic as we could argue of white girl finding herself in another country is, (laughs) I appreciated her journey. I appreciated that it was in Europe. And not in, like, Asia. So I think that her, like, wandering around Europe, like, making friends, having to get out of her comfort zone was really nice. And I liked that story. It was something like a nice little happy fun white girl story for a nice little happy fun girl, white girl me. (laughs) I enjoyed it. The other one is The Beekeeper's Apprentice by... Shit, who's it by? It's... A retelling of um, Sherlock Holmes. Okay. By it's by Laurie R. King. It's a series. The Beekeeper's Apprentice is the first book of this series, where it's Mary. I forget her last name. The main character's name is Mary, and it's essentially this girl, this woman, I guess, who meets. Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, and then becomes his apprentice of, like, a detective apprentice, and it's them working together to solve crimes and stuff, and I liked it because I enjoy mysteries. I enjoy, like, suspenseful movies. That's why I like Alfred Hitchcock so much. I like suspenseful stuff, and it was very suspenseful, and I didn't call the ending at all. Like, I didn't call who the criminal was, and so I enjoy mysteries that like keep you going i also have a guilty pleasure of like british stuff like old british stuff like me, sherlock holmes me or too that's literally like, what i'm gonna talk about me too so i will re-watch jane austen like the jane austen movies so many times i love like edwardian like regency era garbage of britain so this was right up that same vein of like Sherlock Holmes era but I don't have to like put up with Sherlock Holmes the whole time because it's Mary as the lead um so that's why I just that's my guilty pleasure is just those like like period time British dramas period time British books love them yeah um no that's definitely (laughs) why are these our guilty pleasures though I think because, like, they represent the white canon. Yeah. Acceptable. Yeah, it's like, my, so, so my, my two, or three, actually, 
So these were all red. Yeah, one of these was red in high school and the other two were red in college. Um, so the first one is Weathering Heights by, um, which one is that by? Emily Bronte? Yeah, Emily. Um, that book is so fucking messy. Um, it's scandalous. It's romantic. It's passionate. Olivier. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. It. I. I just love. I just. I. Yeah. I love that book. Um. Me and Chad are gonna read. Start reading it next week. <laughs> um. Because I just. I again. I like the narrate. I like the narration style. I like the unreliable narrator kind of thing that's happening in that. Um, I love Heathcliff. Um, just because you said what? A messy bitch. <laughs> just because, like, I, I, I think he is black. I think he's a black character. In the um, research before, is like, is he coded like POC? Is he coded black? Yeah, because he comes from uh, the Moors, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is kind of described as like not white, like kind of like his skin. His skin color is um, kind of described, has some descriptions, and in the adaptations, they always portray him as um, someone who is non-white. Um, he's usually like brown, yeah, ethnic, yeah. So, um, and then they talk about his, like in the book, like his black hair, and so like. This was, I think, and this was, I read this in high school and then I reread it later. And so I think this was like, again, that example of like, oh, I like this book because I, there's this character who might be black in it. Um, yeah, I think so. I think it's just like related to me trying to like find, black. find yeah, find myself. Yeah, yeah, really. Um, so really like that narrative. I love the setting. Um, it's like, in this cold, large, dark house. <laughs> it's so it's so good. Like it just puts you right there and like atmosphere. Yeah, like early eighteen hundred uh Britain. I think that's what it is. Like those early British like novels and movies, they have atmosphere. Yes. Like and yeah, the setting is just yeah, it's everything. Um so yeah, Weathering Heights. Then um, the next one is um, oh shit, oh, so I read this in Inglesby class. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why we got? Why why you say her name? <laughs> what did Betsy give you? Um, she gave me Miss Dalloway. by virginia come on now yeah by virginia wolf um and i just like i don't care for virginia wolf because the whole uh oh room of one own uh room of one own uh didn't include black women in that so i i can't fuck with her on that but miss dalloway that's a good book it is i like Again, the the narrative, the yeah, this was like a stream of conscious book, um, one of the like first 
in this kind of like modernism, modernist kind of like writing from what I remember. Um, and yeah, I just like the narration style. I like um, the characters. Um, I like that it's told in a day, like the whole book is set in a day leading up to the party. I like the kind of things it's doing with gender and sexuality. Um, I wrote a paper on how, um, and I actually enjoyed it, um, how like gloves represented um, how the female characters subscribe to um, heteronormative values. Um, and so there was like language about like not wanting to put on gloves. And I read that as like not wanting to, because this was a character, I think uh, Clarissa's um, daughter was queer because she was in a relationship with another character who was uh, clearly coded as lesbian or, or butcher queer. Um, and so like she never wore gloves, that character. And so Miss Dalloway is trying to get her daughter to wear gloves and the daughter's like kind of like not wanting to wear gloves. And so I kind of like read that as yes, yeah, kind of like subversive or whatever. Um yeah, and I enjoyed I enjoyed writing about Miss Dalloway. I like reading it. It's another one of those books you just have to like sit down and read or you're not gonna know what's going on and there's no breaks. There there's like breaks but they're not like chapter breaks. And so it's like, you really do have to kind of like read it like in large sittings or in a day, I don't know, but yeah. Um, and then my final one um, also was Betsy's favorite. Uh, How Howard's end by Ian Forrester. Um, it's, uh, it's about a, big uh uh estate uh and um there is this um this uh rich man who marries there's these two, well there's these two sisters um one marries this like rich man and then she becomes like i think owner of the estate but then there's like some stuff going on with class where the sister uh the other sister marries this like just poor guy like this poor dude and so there's some stuff going on with that um and then i think there's a baby somewhere within the plot they always have babies pop up um and yeah i I don't know. I just like this one because it's, yeah, it's that really like, I don't know. I want to say camp. It's, I think it's campy. <laughs> it's that really like campy British, um, like drama. Um, and I, I think Ian Forrester was gay. So I think, I think that's why I, I like this book. Cause I was like, Oh, I like this kind of like dramatic shit. Um, and I would consider these my guilty pleasures for what you said. You know, they are traditional books that are in the canon. But these are these are books that I yeah, I, I just enjoy. I just like again, again, with um, Howard's in the narration style 
is just I just I just like it. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my uh, my tribute to to white to the white literary canon. That's all they get. <laughs> that's all they get. Those three books. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of books in the canon that I feel like have a good amount of merit, but then I feel like it just needs to be gutted, and we need to really just reconsider what do we consider canon. Yeah, because a lot, it's like a lot of, so in order to do that, you, the English as a field would have to expand its definition of literature, um, because literature isn't just prose, it's poetry, it's, um, film, it's, it's all magazines, I think magazines, blo- like blogs, like it's a lot of things. I think if like the English discipline wants to keep the traditional canon, we should also extend it into a modern canon. Yeah, so you yeah, they're working off of a a very old, like older um definition of literature, a more or a more static definition of literature whereas literature now is or always has been much more expansive than just one type of literature yeah yeah but um yeah i don't think that i think you know they want there is this desire to obtain this level of elitism when it comes to what's considered in the canon um, and so there are times when even in like black studies, um, folks want to resist like canonizing Toni Morrison, for instance, um, because like they don't want her books to be considered like on a pedestal. And I get that. Um, I also just don't understand why things have to be canonized, um, you know, but I, I don't know. So right, we don't need a candidate at all. Yeah, just whatever. Just read whatever. Yeah, yeah, and don't designate one particular book or hide one, put one book on a pedestal over like just a flurry of just all these many different stories and authors and yeah, it really does rob a lot of people of just getting a different perspective because some books are labeled as more canonical than others. Yeah. Also, while we're on here, um, there is a short story that I read from Melville and I never thought I would read Herman Melville in my life. Um, you said what? That's a mood. <laughs> um, but uh, Benito Serino, it's a short story by him. I read it in a class for my um, Black Rebellions class. And it's about, um, it's set, it references the Haitian Revolution. Um, and basically, it's just a slow, it's like a slow cooker of these enslaved people who take over a, a, a slave ship um, okay. and it's told from the 
perspective of one of the sailors and the sailor it's just good uh uh the sailors trying to figure out what's going on um on the ship and why the uh captain is being kind of like bossed around by the enslaved people or why they're not listening to him um and it's it's really good in in terms of thinking about uh power and 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 race and things like that and masculinity too which you know i love things that <laughs> talk about those things um so benito sereno is another uh guilty pleasure of mine just because it belong it, it's it's it, it's Herman Melville you know someone who is in the canon Did you know that Herman Melville and that um, Nathaniel Hawthorne are thought to be lovers? Yeah, I heard about that when we were reading, um, yeah, that book. Yeah, I heard about that. Letters. Yeah, yeah, you can, can't you read them? Uh, yeah, isn't I think there... there's a site dedicated to them. Yeah, there's so much, like, <laughs> there's so much we need to, like, know about our, those authors. I feel like that's more interesting is like we can like look at them as like the possibly queer freaky people that they are and then take that into our readings of their work Mm -hmm. because I don't that like queer people can separate themselves from their narratives yeah like we read their stuff with a queer lens absolutely and we should be doing it yeah it's um yeah I I totally agree with that um I even when you know you write well, I think his stuff has always been read as having a homoerotic or a queer undertones. Um, like I know Billy Bud has been uh, considered one, and Moby Dick, which uh, oh yeah, Toni Morrison does a a great reading of of Moby Dick, I believe, or was it Billy Bud? In in um playing playing in the dark, um, it's where she does like it's a good she re, she reads the white literary canon Tony, yeah in the dark is on no name book clubs to read for this month so i think i'm gonna read that this month yeah no definitely read it um and it would be fitting since we're talking about the white literary canon and um yeah tony morrison critiquing that i think uh yeah i've read uh playing in the dark and i think that one kind of resolves me of my guilt, my guilty pleasure in the white literary canon because Morrison also like reads like the black presence or what she calls the Africanist presence in white literature. Um, And she's saying like, you know, look, you know, if we read this presence there, what can that tell us about whiteness? And so I think that's why um i like those books that i listed um yeah because they yeah it's like a yeah it's just like a little peek into the boundaries of whiteness and how black people are or um imagine doing in this kind of like environment so yeah so i think you'll enjoy playing in the dark so too Okay, and finally, 
we, you know, we were talking about, you know, exploding the canon pretty much. So I think, you know, leading into this question, it would fit nice. What are the books that you want to teach Mm. or that you would dream of teaching? Yeah, if I was to teach, I've got three, two of which are manga or comics, actually. Mm. But one is, I mentioned it before, Bearheart by Gerald Visner. Gerald Visner, he is Native American. He's a member of a Native American tribe. I want to say the Chippewa tribe, but I think he's mixed. But he writes, all of his books feature Native American characters, and I read it in a Roselle class. It was the first Roselle class I ever took, and I was a sophomore. And so I was reading this book, I don't know if I was quite ready for it because it's very violent. It's very bloody. A girl fucks her dogs. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. There's, he describes dog sex very well. Um, there's a lot of like murder that's described in detail. A lot of like torture. That's and you want to teach this? Yes, because Roselle taught it under an eco-critic lens naturally, because he's an eco-crit. Um, he did it with that, and also, like, the idea of marginalized voices. And it follows, it's a retelling of huh, something. But it's these Native American characters trying to cross America to return to, like, homeland, essentially. And I like this book because I think all of the violence is necessary. And I think this because I think Visner uses this violence to draw attention to issues and concerns and realities that Native Americans face daily. And it also is just like, it's a big eco-critic book. It's like the destruction of the earth by oil companies has led to this post-apocalyptic existence. And the only ones left are... Like, the only ones left who can do anything, maybe, are, like, the native peoples of this land. And then also, I like it because it's described as a written oral text, which is kind of like a conundrum, because he rewrites the book every few years to make it into a living text. Oh, wow. So it's meant to be that the book is being constantly rewritten and never finished to keep the story alive. And so it's also unreliable in that sense. Someone, I read a paper on it once where it was like oral tricksters, I think was the name of it, where Visner is the trickster character because the book is changing. It's alive. We don't know if it will change or what will be different. Mm. And that was the first book I read in like postmodernism that I was like, okay, I can get behind postmodernism. It was in the same class as Handmaid's Tale that I read that book. Mm. But I read it twice with Roselle. Once in that class, once in an eco-crit class. And I think about it constantly. That's I actually bought a copy of that book. That's how much I liked it. Yeah, that's how you know when you like a book when you actually buy it. Yeah. And then I also have Akira, which I mentioned earlier, that cyberpunk manga. Simply because, like, Akira is the foundation of cyberpunk as a genre. And so when I imagine 
teaching it, it would be in a cyberpunk class where we discuss like the genre of cyberpunk, what makes something cyberpunk, what does this movement do in literature, kind of like that Afrofuturism class we took, but I would have it be focused on cyberpunk. And just because I think the storyline of Akira is so fantastic, the art is fantastic, and I think it really would help challenge the mindset I think a lot of students might have and teachers might have of manga just being like anime titties <laughs> and it actually being literature or what we would consider literature because Akira really does take it up that notch and it is kind of violent but not as violent as Bearheart definitely hmm. and then the last one would be Hellboy the comics for Hellboy by Mike Minoa, Minoa, whatever his name is. Um, because I read Hellboy this year as well with Akira. I read it shortly after. And I read the original Hellboy series. I haven't read the sequel series yet. But reading it, it's definitely a comic series that has a lot of influences from literature and from folklore. And the author actually, like, the versions I read were, like, the anniversary editions with, like, his intro explaining his inspiration or whatever, where he, t he like, they use quotes from, like, Edgar Allan Poe or, like, other canon authors, and then, like, take from themes of that especially. There's a lot of influence from British folklore and the monsters that Hellboy faces or, like, the situations he's in. It pulls from, like, demonology folklore. It also uses King Arthur folklore towards the end. Mm. And I think, like, looking at Hellboy, you can see... I think it, I would use Hellboy either in a class about, like, allegory or, like, a folklore class, especially, where we're reading a lot of different folklore, or in a writing class. I feel like Hellboy can definitely show you how you can use influences from different genres to create something new because I feel like Hellboy I didn't think about it too extensively on my own but I feel like there is a lot you could dissect in the story of Hellboy just like he's a half demon who is supposedly like a descendant of King Arthur but also a descendant of a prince of hell who is the one who has to save the earth from apocalypse but is also, like, othered the entire time, but finds friendships in, like, Abe Sapien, that fish man who's in there, and, like, others who have magical powers. And it's him trying to be a good man while also being a demon, literally. <laughs> I think there's a lot of, like, the struggle of mankind that you can look into in a similar vein to, like, I would say maybe Catcher in the Rye, where it's like struggling to make sense of your world. It's the same with Hellboy. I would feel like that struggle of like being a good person while also like fighting against your own nature. Yeah. I I need to read um those com the it's a comic series, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I need read to read that. Free on read comics online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay right, so you're done yeah um I wish I would have thought about this 
because I, I, mm, okay, so I, I think I just have books. Um, I talked about, I, I talked about, I was like, oh, let's explode the cannon, and I'm going back to just, just books. Anyway, um, also explode the cannon. Yeah, true. Uh, um, okay, so I think, I think I would definitely want to teach, um, the bluest eye. Mm-hmm. I would have problems with students understanding the sex scenes and the rape scenes. Um, so, yeah, I think I would have to um, contextualize that, but how do you contextualize that? Um, but yeah, I think that would kind of be in a class about um i think i just want to teach black women's literature and writing um i don't i just think it's just something very useful in in hearing from that perspective for me um as as just a black gay man um and i think um yeah, I'll just say I'll just say the bluest eye. I don't have any other ones. If I if if there was a film that I wanted to teach, I think I would want to teach um just Spike Lee's um mm-hmm. just his whole his whole filmography, but especially um School Days and Shy Rock. Which I, I like- have you seen Shy Rock? No, I haven't watched any Spike Lee films yet. That was, those are my favorites because um, there is just he mixes with genre. Um, yeah. There, there. It's a musical. It's a drama. It's a comedy. The just the language is poetic. It's he. Yeah, those are some really great films. I think if I were to teach film. Now that we're on the subject, yeah, I would do Shape of Water, Midsummer, <laughs> or Perfect Blue, which is by oh yeah, you tell me about this movie, just because I think there's a lot to be had there. It's also super surreal, but I love Shape of Water. I loved it, and I think there's a lot we could unpack there also midsummer i just enjoyed that one too i feel like there's also a lot to unpack there yeah yeah um yeah i think um yeah i think those would be the those are at least the two authors that i can most readily say that i would want to teach just because i think um Again, I think they're the they're both um I think those are both pieces of literature that make you think and like may like make you at least for a the student that I the students that I'm imagining, I think when they see like Shyrock or School Days, it would play like it would just really play with their expectations on 
what they think you know the story will be about how they think the story will be told and I think the same thing for uh, Toni Morrison and I think Mm -hmm. that goes back to just how I think books and just any kind of literature like how they use language to communicate their uh, message Um, and I think those two authors would give um, just give a a new language to like thinking about um, really how white supremacy affects uh, the black community but also how it affects everyone it'd be interesting if you taught them together as like an expert of language and how it's used in different ways to share a similar message yeah yeah so yeah morrison and spike lee on the same syllabus or in the same class yeah i think yeah i agree with that i don't know what the class would be called um but yeah i think yeah explode expectations <laughs> explode expectations yeah, and just have a big, uh, a, a big exploding car as the poster. I'd take it. <laughs> I take. <it. laughs> yeah. Okay, so this has been a very pleasant conversation about books. Um, I, it it went as random as I thought it was gonna go, but I feel like. Like I I got a lot of book I got a lot of book recommendations I always get a lot of book recommendations from you, <laughs> and um a film like the film pairings that you do I think are good. Um, you did um surreal horror I guess because we did at my movie night last night and we did um Jacob's Ladder from nineteen ninety. Okay. Which is like a Vietnam vet who's having hallucinations mm. about people following him. Okay. It's good. I think you'd like it. I think it's like coded most of these characters are Jewish. Oh wow. But okay. Uh, and then we watched the nineteen nineties remake of The House on Haunted Hill. Hmm. I don't think I've seen this. It, mm. it was okay. Um, I want to see the original for sure. Okay. Um, I had a film pairing for you, but I think I might just message you because I'm blanking on it. So now we've come to the end of the show. Part of the show I like to call So Dumb. And it's basically where you can talk about what annoyed you for the week. So, Leslie, what are you so dumb with? I'm so done with straight men looking at women. Mm. Mm-hmm. I remember when we had our like Facebook chat a while back, I was talking about that guy friend of mine who made that comment about my weight. Yeah. Like extended rant about how I was going to die essentially because I'm morbidly obese and how um I need to work out and be healthy and I'm surviving on genetics alone. And that's why I look as good as I do now. (laughs) But like, even though I look decent, I still like, am like overweight and unhealthy. (sighs) It's that same guy friend, I guess. And the more like when I spend, it's usually extended amounts of time with him because he's part of my movie night friend group. 
I just realized that, like, he just, it finally reached me that he is the living embodiment of what I hate and am afraid of in straight men. The fact that it's, like, straight men just looking at, like, thin, like, pretty privileged, thin privileged women and going, oh, she's so pretty. And then looking at an older woman who is still just as beautiful and is still thin privileged, pretty privileged. Oh, she was cuter 10 years ago in that movie that we watched when she was young. It's like, this woman is 40, maybe. And it's like, I'm so tired. I'm so done with, like, hearing men or thinking about men or, like, reading about men who look at older women or women who don't fit this, like, force-fed image we have of what a woman should look like. And then just like sexualizing their bodies just by because I know he just looks at women and sexualizes them immediately because he talks about how he just looks at people indiscriminately and thinks that most people are attractive but I know like I do that too but I don't sit there and stare down these people and think about what about them is bangable and just I'm so sick of this reminded me why in college most of my friends were gay (laughs) or queer women if they were straight, they were women, or they were Tyon Hudson. There was no one else I was going to talk to. <laughs> and it's just like, the gall these ugly men have to look at these women and be like, you know what, she's not that cute because she's a little chubby. She's not that cute because she doesn't work on her butt. And first of all, you really think anyone can build an ass just from doing squats? You don't think half of that is genetics? And it's the fact that I told him with my mouth that one of the reasons why I am averse to becoming, like, super fit, super whatever, part of it is that I don't want to because I don't want to go to the gym. The other part of it is (laughs) I know that if I conformed to this idea of beauty, men would probably start talking to me. Because as it is right now, I look like a bitch, I'm chubby, um, I look gay, and I don't want men to talk to me. So I am chubby bitch gay. <laughs> and I explain this, like, and there's a lot of women whose stories, like, testimonies I've read online, I've read their blogs, where they're like, when I lost a lot of weight, m- like, creepy men started approaching me. It wasn't nice attention from men, it was men feeling entitled to my body because they thought it was attractive suddenly. Oh, wow. Or, it, like, passive aggressiveness. Like, better not to lost all that weight, which, like, apparently we aren't a human being if we have body weight on us. Mm. And it's just, like, me trying to explain that and him being like, well, why would you sacrifice your health just for blah, blah, blah? It's like, you don't know anything about my health. You're not my doctor. You don't see his whole crux of this argument was you drink a lot of soda and that's not good for you. Well, you're an alcoholic, Nathan. That's not good for you. You gonna say the boy name? I'm gonna say his name. I'm oh my no. god. Like, I'm so tired of men who are, like, the fact that, like, these men are imperfect. How can you come to me, like, God's gift to mankind, and try to tell me anything about my body when you don't know my history with, like, insomnia? You don't know my family's medical history. 
You don't know my history with anxiety. You don't know my gut problems that have been registered by my doctor for years. And as to my bloating, you don't know anything about my physical health. You don't know anything about my body and you're not entitled to it. So why are you making some comment so I can therefore have like two months of extended body dysmorphia, you fucking idiot? You can literally, I think what makes me so angry about it is just like hearing men comment on other women's bodies just reinforces my own anxiety. Because I know I'm not crazy. I know that y'all are all doing it. And then also, like you can undo so many years of work on body image and body confidence with one drunken rant. Where it's like, I just want you to do better because you're my friend. Well, like, Maybe I was doing better. And it's that same kind of gaslighting you get from, like, shitty boyfriends who are like, I want you to do better mentally for the sake of our relationship when they're the one tearing you down. And it's like, if you want me to do better, maybe you should lead by example. And maybe you should do better. But I also just am so done with men thinking they are the experts on health when I can look at what they're saying and realize that you are being influenced by a system that benefits from you having body image issues because that's how they make money. Wow. They don't want you to be healthy. If, like, the government, if, like, society wanted you to be healthy, healthy food would not be expensive, it would be more accessible, and gyms would be free. They want to capitalize off of body issues. We can talk about, like, the entirety of industries built off of, like, women's insecurities. And it extends to men, too. Like, men are made insecure of, like, we can look at men's health magazines that just make them think that they need to look a way or eat a certain way, act a certain way. And it's not healthy to have that mindset. Like, yes, we should encourage, like, exercise more often. We should lead a more active lifestyle. But it was the point of the matter that he said verbatim first of all my friend the korean american friend jumped in and was like why are you telling leslie this and not me he tells and he told her point blank it's because you're skinny actually it's no you're not skinny it's because you're skinnier my friend fits into the free korean size she's skinny the free korean size is like extra small so it's not even it's not even about health because he also said at that point this isn't about health like it is about looks So it is not about my health and what I should do to be a more healthy person. It's because you want me to look a certain way, which why would I change? Because then you're just going to sexualize me more. There will be no peace under this. I win nothing. That's what I'm so done with. I'm so done with like men injecting themselves into women's health and women's lives. If we want to talk about exploding the pin and exploding expectation, I never want to see another male doctor as long as I live. I want men to exit women's health completely. Yeah, I do find it weird how many uh, male gynecologists there are. Which, I have a male gynecologist in America. He's nice enough. He's a good doctor, I guess. I would prefer a woman. I would prefer, like, women biologically women and like trans women 
to do the research for women's health, to put out the articles on women's health, to do the experiments for women's health, and to be my primary care providers. I want it, I don't want a woman nurse, I don't want a woman secretary, I want a woman doctor. And I want 12 of them, and I want six of them to be black, and I want four more of them to be Latina, <laughs> and I want half of them to be trans. Like, I'm sick of like going to some man who doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. But we can also discuss like girl, women, female doctors having inter- internalized misogyny and misogynoir and racism, which is also something that needs to be addressed. So essentially, I want more black women doctors, and I want them to be my doctor. Yeah, that couldn't be so bad. So right. yeah, oh, you done? In peace. <laughs> you said what? Just let me be fat in peace. <laughs> okay. Um. So my laptop's on seven percent. So I'm gonna speed through this, and we're gonna close it out, and it's gonna be good. Okay, so what I'm so done with, um, uh, typically I'm usually done with it, but so right now I'm done with the Academy. I'm always done with the Academy, but specifically to like this week, I had a moment where I was like, why am I here if like one, the job market is very unstable. Um, I have to jump around for jobs I, um, and then, like, there's this whole, like, kind of, like, I was talking with another friend, there's this whole culture of celebrity that is among a lot of, uh, grad students who are, who are in grad school with me, um, and so, like, these are people at more prestigious universities that know, uh, well-known scholars and that, you know, are studying under them or just, um, yeah, working with their theories and they're kind of like being, uh, seen more, recognized more. And yeah, just the whole, like, kind of like Ivy league scholar thing. Um, it, it just creates this kind of like level elitism where, like these are the scholars that will end up getting jobs because just because they know people or like because they're working with certain theories or certain canonical <laughs> canonical authors or theorists um and i just was like you know i i like writing i like research i like you know writing about the things that i want to write about and i don't like the idea of my work or my ideas not being seen as uh, valid or whatever just because I'm not I don't come from these um, Ivy League people or whatever Um, so I was having a kind of situation or crisis about that Um, and I also uh, just don't like the um, overall demands that the academy puts on uh professors and um just like the conditions in which we have to teach under having to meet certain requirements certain objectives and things like that so i was just like i either was thinking of being an independent scholar and just like 
being a scholar and writing on my own without having a institutional backing or I just thinking like, you know, just have a PhD and go figure out some other career, um, which if I did that, I would just probably try to focus on being a full like a full time filmmaker or again, go into publishing because that seems like where the power to like change the narrative the the money is the opportunity to like uh start careers from people who are have are marginalized voices so i was thinking of getting into publishing or like really like taking my like owning a theater company or uh putting on theater productions really taking that seriously um yeah so i'm just really like rethinking the whole professor thing the whole academy thing i think there's something to be said about like taking that break after a phd to like work in a field or like work in a creative mindset because i think you can always go back to being a professor once you've had like experience somewhere else you can always go back to that timeline but then i almost feel like i don't like the idea of people leaving the academy and directly becoming professors because it's like that harvard applicant to montevallo who i think it was who's the one who left he was a fiji that professor oh where he was telling me about a harvard applicant to Montevallo, where the only thing really on their CV was that they went to Harvard. They didn't really do anything else. And he said that their demo class was pitiful. So I think that, like, it makes you a better professor if you decide to come back once you've been out in a world that isn't the academic world and, like, experienced more, done more, like, put some, like tread to your shoes I guess worn out some shoes to kind of see more something something we need to like break open the academy so it can have a better foundation and I think it does deserve to have more people who have not stayed in it but have also left to bring more to the academy because it only makes it better yeah so I think You could not become a professor or you could decide to follow it in another timeline. But I think that taking a step back for me was like, I can only talk about it from my experience, but I think taking a step back is very helpful and helps you like reconceptualize what you would want from the academy to think about what is the best way to give to that, to reach that reality. Yeah. Yeah. I also like, don't want to have to like actually try to go like work a nine to five (laughs) and i like the somewhat of a freedom or of you know having a academic kind of schedule but i would really like to know what it would what it is like to live life without being on the academic school calendar like i'm i'm 25 i have never lived life outside of the academic school calendar it's nice i'm sure it is 
it's harder for me to like set deadlines for myself for projects I want to complete and then finish them. But that's something that you have to like figure out yourself, work yeah. on yourself, and all like. But it's nice to just be able to go out with my friends and not have to worry about like grading papers or like I have an assignment due. There's nothing. And like my work stays at work. I work from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. I don't take anything home. I don't think about these students when I go home. I teach them and I'm done. Because I don't give my students homework at my academy that I teach at. Um, yeah, I don't give them homework because I think my Korean teacher, my boss, gives them homework, but he grades it if he gives them to them. Um, the only thing I have to do is write reports on them, which I do at work. So it's nice to like have the separation where there's nothing injecting itself into my life, like my personal life, except for what I want to let into it. I like that. Oh, the echo was real on my side. I don't know if it echoed on your side. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that kind of point of view. Um, okay. So again, this was fun. Thank you for talking about books and the Academy, which is what I get out of conversations with you. Um, or what I expect out of conversation with you, you can uh, follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Go Black Boy Go, and you can follow Leslie at. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at that Leslie Smith. That that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh yeah thank you uh well leslie thank you so much for coming on here and talking to me for two hours about books and yeah and thank you guys for listening to two hours of us talk about books in the academy and uh i will i'll see you next episode i don't know why i struggled to uh (laughs) close that out but okay i'll see you next episode Let me be fat in peace.